0: Welcome to the WatermarkOC.church podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Ben Appleby. I'm the associate pastor here at Watermark. And um, a bit of a, just start the morning off with a bit of a personal announcement. Um, my wife and I, Riley, uh, married 10 years in May, welcomed our seventh child into the world. Um, yes, yes. I know it. I know. I know. Um, there's, there's one of many pictures. Uh, one of your first thoughts is, what the heck are you doing here? Um, but my, I assure you, my wife said if I take another selfie, she was going to kick me out anyway. So um, that's why I got to be here. And you're thinking so many other things like how, who, what, where, why, seven kids. How is that possible? Um, and uh, that's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, so more on that later. Um, I think it's a worthy endeavor. I think it's a worthy thing, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but this, this series, Why the Bible Matters, that's, that's really why we're here this morning, is to end this series. And, um, you know, we have this church value, which is to embed the Bible in everything. Embed the Bible in everything. It goes better, <laughs> trust me, and take the, the, the Bible's word for it. It goes better when that thing is at the center of all that we do and all that we are. And so it's our goal to try and work that into everything. And so we work to do it a series. That's a good place to start. We believe that the Bible is the, the supernatural book, is the one and only supernatural book ever written. And we hope that as an outcome of this series, that that you're being encouraged to to drive that value deeper into your daily life, your family life, your personal practice, to open that thing up and see what it has to say for your life, just to see what God, see what the Holy Spirit might do. And like Bucky said in in the announcements, yeah, students, you can be dismissed. Sorry about that, students, you can be dismissed. Go ahead, head off to your classes, students and kids. Uh, You're welcome to do that at this time. But if you missed the message last weekend This is, seriously, I'm going to use the word imperative. It is imperative that you go online and you check out the podcast from last weekend. Bucky was up here, gave a wonderful message, and the rest of the elder board joined him as they announced this new mission and vision statement. They talked about this vision statement. That's a big deal. That's kind of a big deal because the vision is the preferred future that that represents our unique community, The unique vision that God gave Bucky and and the elder team together, they wrestled together and came through on the other side with unity around where they see this community going and what uniquely they picture we are, what God has put Watermark on the planet to be about and what to be known for. It's up on the wall, to your right. It's a little dark right now, but um, that's the vision and mission statement. If you didn't get one, we have uh, bookmarks that you can be praying over. But one of the words that sticks out from that vision statement is this idea of generational We want to build a generational community. See, every single word in that vision statement is particular to us. It's no accident. It's not random selection. It's very particular to us. And that word generational is is a personal um, favorite of mine, a personal conviction, not just personally in my biological family as we try and build this big generation. But as a church, we want to see the generations come together, young and old. We actually want to build a bridge between the two. We don't want to see one or the other get pushed out. We want to see the two of them flourish together in community, which is a pretty radical, unique vision, by the way. A lot of people are content just to to grow old and and be mature. And a lot of others say, no, we forsake all of that. We just need to reach 20-somethings and millennials. We don't want to live in either of those camps. We want to bridge them at Watermark. And, you know, what's so cool about that is it fits perfectly in what we were going to preach on this weekend because we're talking about this passage from the Old Testament uh, that is all about generational promises. And that's kind of my big idea for this morning. Uh, it's going to be on the screen now, hopefully. Let's, let's see here. My one big idea. Shema. Shema is this old Hebrew word. But here's my big idea. God is God. That's my one point. God is God Now go grab someone and make sure they know it. Now go grab someone in the next generation, whether you're a biological kid or you know what, you don't have kids yet, great, adopt a kid. And I don't mean legally, I mean just grab someone that you have influence with, grab their ears and make sure they know that same truth that God is God and let him be so. That's my big idea for this morning. I want to walk through, what does that even mean? God is God. Ben, that's kind of redundant. And I get that, but bear with me. What I mean is in terms of his exclusive authority, let God be God. In terms of his, uh, his superiority, let God be God. How about this one? In terms of his total ownership over our lives, my life, your life, and all that it is, total ownership, that's letting God be God. How about in terms of, yes, us personally, our kids, whether you have them or don't, the, the generations, he is a God of the generations. That statement, God is God, let, if we could just let God be God and then invite the next generation to know that, it allows in a world full of chaos, in, in a world that we're just from day one, we're, we're, there's this assault of different opinions and different worldviews and different gods. That one statement offers us a pinpoint clarity and a refreshed lens that our lens might become more like his. That in all that chaos, it gives us a new orientation that informs everything else. And uh, the Old Testament calls that Shema. There's this great reference that we're gonna get into. I'm gonna explain it all. But first, I wanna ask you a question. What was one word, what was one word or phrase that your parents would say to you when they would put you to bed? Oh, okay, you can remember that. Everyone in the room can remember that. But if you have kids, what's one word or phrase that you say to your kids? Every night, when you're put in bed, right? There's a few classics, okay? Uh, sleep tight, good night, uh, sweet dreams. Just shut up and go to sleep. Okay, that's one of them. Uh, I don't use that one at all. I'm sure you guys don't either. Um, see you in the morning. Um, how about I love you? That's, that's good. That's a steady one. Um, we've all used one of the other, right? And sometimes we've been at a loss. But you see, the ancient Jews, they had, uh, and some of the modern ones, by the way, had a higher view of bedtime routine than we do today had a much higher view every night every night and every morning actually they would speak one word one awe-inspiring and powerful word over the kids Not just once but twice a day they would speak it and it's this thing called shema say shema Shema. one more time say shema Shema. say it like you speak Hebrew okay like you're fluent Shema. shema good a couple of you went all in on that and I'm really proud of you this morning The Shema, it represents three distinct passages from the Old Testament. We're going to start in Deuteronomy 6. If you have your Bibles, your print Bibles, or your your Bible app on your phone, you can go ahead and open them up. Again, if that's one outcome of this series, that you opened your Bible, let God be praised, he is good, because you opened your Bible for the first time, or second time, or fifth time in the new year, which is great. So you can open that up. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Okay, I'm going to put it on the screen for those of you who don't have it, but um, here's what it says. It says, Listen, O Israel. Let's just stop right there. <laughs> yeah, I know, already. Let's just stop right there. That one word that would change history for now and all eternity, listen. Listen, hear. That's actually the literal translation. That word you just repeated three times, Shema, that's what it means. Listen or hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord our God is one. Our Lord is God. He is one. Hear, listen. Listen. So our first application, are you ready for it? How can we be about God's ways, God's will, God's character, if we never hear his word? Say it again. How can we be about his will for our lives? Everyone in this room, if I asked, would you ever wonder God's will, where you should go, to the right, to the left, what's your direction, what's your future? If you've ever wondered that, you've wanted to know God's will, all the hands would go up. How can you ever know his will, his ways, or his character, how he operates, if we don't pause to hear what's in that book? He's speaking to us in the first word of the passage. He's trying to speak to us. He goes on. Verse 5. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Really quick. This is Moses Okay, they've been in the wilderness. He's taken the Israelites, freed them from captivity, from Egypt. They're they're roaming around in the desert. And then they're finally going to enter in the promised land. And Moses Moses is giving them a heads up. He's giving them a really quick gut check. You're going into this foreign land with foreign groups of people, with foreign gods. It's going to be a total assault on your senses. It's going to be a total, from day one, guys, it's going to be an attack on your worldview. I'm trying to set you up for success, and here is my truth, here is my point to you. This is Moses to those people as they're about to enter that land. He's trying to prime the pump. He's trying to get them ready for what they're going to face. That's our context. And we have this thing called Shema every single night. Listen, hear. But this word means so much more than that. It's like do. It's like um, uh, breathe it. Live this truth. And up and even to today, modern-day Jews, it's part of the mitzvah. The mitzvah is a religious commandment. That's what it means. It's a religious command that they would have this prayer twice daily. They would recite it. It goes back as early as Moses' time. And then, and then after the time of Jesus in the third century, they would put it on tombstones. Uh, those devout Jews, and they would die. They'd have the Shema right there on the tombstone even. So from the beginning to the end, they were about this. And the principle, as I said, This is a great starting place for everything else we do this morning. The principle is simply this. When you think about here, when you think about Shema, you got to think about God is God, and there is no other. If we would just pause and let God be God in our lives, the one true God, there is no other. If we would let him rule over our lives, all of our resources, all of our hopes and dreams and prayers, over the hours that compose the legacy of our life, and over the generations, He is God from the beginning to the end. You see, um, the challenge, you guys, let's get right into some more of the challenge. The challenge is that you can't talk about Shema without talking about time. And I want to ask you, what is truly, truly, what is the one irreplaceable resource, the one irreplaceable commodity in this world? But time, time, exactly, time. And when it comes to the word of God in your lives, in your kids' lives, whoever it is that you can grab and you can get their ears, you have kids or you don't, when it comes to that influence, how big a deal is time? Just how big a deal is that time? See, I believe that time is the ultimate measure of your life's devotion and legacy. Just pause. And I'll just create this slide just because it sounds cool. Look at this slide. Time is the ultimate measure of your life's devotion and legacy. You guys, will make all sorts of investments in our life. All sorts of investment with with physical dollars, with tangible stuff. But what we do with our time has perhaps the most powerful compounding interest and definitely cannot be gotten back once expended. That's how powerful this principle is of time. When people come to your service and the celebration of life when you've passed and they're there at your funeral, the things that they say will be motivated by the time spent. Most likely, the grand chorus of those words and things that people say about your life will be about the hours put in. That is an irreplaceable commodity, and you can't talk about Shema without talking about the time needed to be put in. And for a lot of this passage, he's talking to, he says, kids, so your kids, your children, your children's children. So who's the audience? The parents. And if you ask parents, 100 out of 100, if you ask any parent, believer or non-believer, if you ask them that simple question, would you like to become a better parent? Would you like to be a better parent? 100 out of 100 will raise their hands and say yes. And yet there's this challenge, not just of the time, but of the how. Well, how should we do it? I wish I had a system. I wish I had a plan. Ben, isn't there a great book you can read? I do, in fact, have a book I'd like to reference. It's called The Bible. Okay, let's go on right here. Okay, in Deuteronomy six and verse seven, this is what he says. He goes on, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home. Where? Where? Home. And when you are on the road, where? On the road. On the road. And when you're going to bed, where? A bed. And when you're getting up, when? Awesome, okay, we have 15% of people filing in, great job. Tie them to your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders, write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. That sounds like a pretty awesome system. That sounds like the natural rhythms of life 1,500 years ago and this year, 2018. How freaking cool is that, that the Word of God still stands today? There's application right now for the life that you're living. Moses, this old crusty dude from 1,500 years ago got it, and it still works. And that's the insight and the wisdom of God who breathed this book. He knew that we were still going to have opportunities with our kids in our home. We were going to have opportunities at home, on the road, going to bed, and waking up. Has anything changed in those 1,500 years? Yeah, okay, maybe some technology, some stuff here and there, but those opportunities, the system, the rhythms of life, they're still there. They're right there. So the principle, you guys, and this is the task of parenthood. Again, I just want you to apply it. If you don't have biological kids yet, great. We were suggesting you can adopt a kid. Grab someone. Adopt a kid. Okay, whoever that is. Someone in your office. Someone in your community. Someone in a school nearby you. Some student who's across the hall right now. One of the kids who's across the hall right now. Go ahead and grab one here's the principle that i want you to see the task of being a parent the task of being a parent is about separating between the important and the most important the task of being a parent whether spiritual or biological is distinguishing and discriminating between the important and the most important Understand how critical that is. There's lots of different ways to capture this quote, but one, one guy says it best. He, he's talking about um, organizations and how they're how they're um, you know how they can be healthy, and he uses the term "good to great." He says, "Good is often the enemy of great. Good is the enemy of great because we'll settle and we'll sacrifice. We'll just kind of we get in that that mode of it's it's good enough." And so therefore we may never experience great. You could say the same thing right here. That if we only settle for important, the rush, the hustle and bustle, what the world says we need to do, what the culture says we need to do, the sports teams, the schools, all of their measures for success. If we just only ever settle for important, then important will become the enemy of the most important. You parents in the room know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this in your lives. The important will be the enemy and the adversary of the most important. Another author gives a helpful, helpful tip here. This is from a book, and there's going to be books, you guys. We have this event after service, the Chili Cook-Off. It's going to be in that room, the big youth room after service. And Robin, who's our children's pastor, she's put a table out with all kinds of resources. Books you can read with kids, books you can read for yourself to get educated. They're awesome. I sponsor every single one of them. And one of the authors, um, he said this. He said that, that we often fail to teach our children not just because we lack understanding of what needs to be taught, but because we don't take the time to plan to teach. Periodically, we feel guilty that our children are growing up so fast. But then we never sit down for 15 minutes and plan a strategy to take another 10 minutes a day to teach them the most important truths in the world. Does that sound like anyone in the room? Does anyone else feel the same way? I know I do feel the same way. They're growing up. Oh, my God, there goes my six-year-old. I can't, he doesn't fit in my lap the same way anymore. Am I missing the opportunity with him? Am I just letting it fly by me? And yet that's not what hit me the most. That last line is what struck me between the eyes. Take 10 minutes a day to teach them what? The most important truths in the world. That is what we're suggesting, by the way, right? If you're new at a church, that'd be an insight for you. We're suggesting that the truth of God is God is one of the most premier things that we ever get instructed by the Bible. And yet, so most of you who are believers in this room, that is what we're suggesting that it is the most important. We're suggesting that this is the most important truth in the world. If we believed that, everything else would fall to the wayside. We would have a very clear picture of the difference between important and most important, wouldn't we? We've said that. We've suggested that. By saying yes to Jesus and saying yes to the Word of God, we've suggested that that is the most important truth in the world. And so just take that one piece God is God. I don't care if your kids are teenagers or, or young adults or they're three, four, five, and six-year-olds like mine are. Um, I'll give you an example of how I start with that one truth with them, that if my kids, just my even young ones, could understand God is God, and I have someone to thank for that. His name's Kenny Nita. Kenny Nita was a youth volunteer as I was a junior higher in high schooler. He was there for 10 years. He volunteered his time to the next generation, by the way. How cool is that? And he said something, whatever, decades ago that stuck with me. And then I just, I wasn't trying to be a cool or really important dad. I just just started using it with my kids. He had this thing where he would let anyone borrow his stuff. He would share any of his things, and he would borrow, he'd let people borrow any of his things. And he would say something really simple. He came up with this really silly acronym, AGS, All God's Stuff, AGS. He'd call it AGS. It's all God's stuff. It's all God's stuff. It's all God's stuff. Do you think that that has an application for a three-year-old who's trying to learn the principle of sharing? Do you think that I can use that time and time and time again for a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old who thinks that their stuff is their stuff all the time and that I'm able to lovingly and graciously uh, 25% of the time come alongside them and suggest, no, it's not yours. It's really not. It belongs to a God in heaven. All good things come from him. He owns it all. In other words, let God be God, Levi, my little six-year-old. Let God be God, Shepherd, my little three-year-old. Let God be God right there in that moment. Even as a three-year-old, they can understand, let God be God. So we've established that they're never too, too early to start. It's never too simple a subject to start because God is God. How will that serve them all the days of their life when they think it's my stuff and I want to hold on to it? When it's actually just God's meant to be used for him and his purposes. Can we just drive that for a minute? Can we just live there for a second? What if our kids, spiritual, biological, the ones we biologically have or those who we adopt, how could that shape their whole worldview for their whole life? It could be powerful. I want to give you another illustration. Now, it's a little bit sensitive of a subject. If there's young folks in the room, great. You get to talk to them about what God has to say about this. Uh, But I came across this tweet, okay? uh, Twitter is a social media platform. It's a micro-blogging platform, so really great gift to people. Let them say a whole lot with a whole little that could totally be offensive to the whole world, but they only get, you know, however many characters to say it. And there was this debate that came up about uh, sexual assault scandals, these sexual assault scandals that were coming through the news. My point is not to talk about that, but is totally to talk about how this young woman whose identity is blocked, and I want to preserve that. It's not to tear her apart, but it's to, to lean into an issue that I think is extremely prevalent the world over. Okay, They're talking about that. She's debating, what should we do about this issue? And and, and and let's see. This is what she says. She says, uh, consent training, rehab for sexual assault predators, specifically, j- just a lot of reading and talking. I don't know. And she goes on to say, I can't read it over there, so I'm gonna read it over here. I don't have the answers. Thing is, I really don't think any of us do. Our society has blocked the answers. We need to break that blockade down. I don't have the answers, and no one has the answers. Really? No one has the answers. And here's what I want you to think about, because all of us are tired. (laughs) Our calendars are maxed out. But but what I want to urge you is that that isn't it worth it to have your child or to have someone in the next generation say something different? To have them adopt a different type of narrative where they don't feel the pressure to just say, Nobody knows! Because they don't want to offend anyone with an exclusive truth, which is what we believe the Bible is. That's what we believe the word of God is, is an absolutely authoritative, exclusive truth. In the world where we say, no, everyone could have the right answer. Actually, that's, that's equally offensive because then no one's right. If everyone's right, no one's right. That's, the, that's what um, relativism is. This is a high-level philosophical term, relativism. It means that just everything's equal. All good ideas are good. All worldviews lead to heaven. They're all probably Right? And then when you say, nope, I think the Bible's the one holy truth, they're like, what the heck, that's offensive. They can't just be one. You just stepped on my ground. You just treaded over me. What's up with you? And you could be standing there. This is an answer. Okay, really quick tangent apologetics, tangent 101. You could help someone in that worldview graciously come alongside them in a conversation, help them understand actually what's equally offensive, if not more so, is to say they're all the same because if they're all the same, they all suck. None of them work. If they're all the same, they're all really bad. So we're suggesting is that the Bible rises above that. And wouldn't you like to help someone have a different sort of answer, whether it's your own biological kid or a kid that you adopt? Wouldn't you like to have them say something with a little bit more authority, with a little bit more conviction, but not just the confidence, but it's backed by the truth of God, the word of God? And just look at, this is not just my idea, look how this ties into the Shema. Let's go back to the Shema. Let's look at Deuteronomy 11. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and Numbers 15. You can look at them. They're totally consistent. Three different sections, three different passages, and totally consistent word of God. So what it says, verse 16. But be careful. Don't let your heart be deceived, so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. Again, Moses to the Israelites. He's giving them this heads up. He's giving them this warning. Verse 17, if you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain and the ground and will fail to produce its harvest. And you will quickly die in that good land the Lord is giving you. What's he talking about? Is he talking about some kind of prosperity gospel where you just get good stuff? Just do what I say and you'll get good stuff. I think that's such a low view of Bible such a low view of the Bible to think. Anytime he talks about his favor, anytime he talks about success, it's just in terms, of, in terms of this tangible monetary thing, and we just make it about stuff. It's such a higher view than that. Just even look at the Joshua passage that we read before. He says, it will go well for you. You'll experience my blessing. He's not making you jump through hoops. He just knows his way is a better way. He's not just an angry pointer finger God that says, do it this way or I'm going to smite you. He just knows that his way works better. Even under the natural laws of how the world works, he knows, follow my law and my way, and trust me, the lamb will produce. You know, that could be metaphor even. That could say, it's going to go well for you. You're going to have favor and success. But there, there's something key there that, that, that applies to this young woman in this post that she put out there for the world to see. And it's this thing of the idol. It's old school terminology from the Bible, idolatry, which is just anything that takes the place of God. It's the definition I would give you. Anything that takes the place of God. R.C. Sproul, who's, a, who's a, a really amazing theologian, author, pastor, R.C. Sproul, you can look him up. He says it's when we worship the creature instead of the creator. Anytime we worship the creature instead of the creator. Or conversely, anytime that we call something holy that is not. What he means by holy is anytime that we've given respect, we've given awe, and we've given worship and adoration where it wrongly belongs. That's the issue of the idol. You see, Moses and the Israelites were fixing to enter into this promised land, a land of innumerable idols. And it's the same today. This social media post just typifies the pressures and anxieties that young people, the people of the next generation are facing. The altars and idols of status, success, success relevance, going viral. I hope that this post will get shared by a thousand people and then a thousand more will repost it. And that is the idol of today. This young woman, can I be everywhere? Can I be everything to everyone? That was her idol. And making that relativistic comment that no one knows, I don't know, and no one knows. And won't that work well for people if I say it that way? I must be everyone, I must be everything to everyone. And so the instruction, you guys, for me and for you as we have kids of different types, is, is if the worldview, which the, the God is God worldview is not coming from you, if it's not coming from the Bible, then where is it coming from? And who is it coming from? Because it will come from somewhere. And, I, and my encouragement to you, especially parents in the room, I don't care how old your kids are. Your job, the job is never finished. <laughs> I think you could say that right back to me, you parents of of adults. The job is never finished. And yet in this one job, it cannot be outsourced. You are the primary disciplers, the primary developers, the primary coaches and mentors of your children. You are the primary ones. Are there secondary ones that are beautiful and wonderful, healthy influences, coaches, teachers, others? Absolutely. But, but But the fact that your primary cannot be outsourced. You know one of the places it can't be outsourced to? The church. It can't be the church's responsibility to be the primary disciples of your kids either. That's an often misunderstood reality about what the church exists to do. Here at Watermark, I'll tell you, that's our value. Our value is not to be the primary disciples of your kids. It's to be the primary disciples of you so that you can develop and coach and mentor your kids. That is our best aim. And there's another book, um, Orange is what it's called, Think Orange. He came up with the title because he says that Imagine the church is red and, uh, and the family, the home is yellow. You put those together, you get orange. This beautiful influence in the world. And he says this quote that's in flag, in, 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 in instructed, impacted, uh, influenced me, influenced me in my own parenting, influenced me as I've coached other parents more than any other comment from his book. But this is what it says. He says that two combined influences make a greater impact than just two influences. Get what he said there. The key word was combined Two combined influences make a greater impact than just two. He goes on to say, the church and the home, these are the two most powerful influences on the planet. That's our picture of how this plays out, about how we as, as the church leadership, church staff, partner with parents, children's, uh, children's church, okay, the children's ministry. That's Robin's vision for what she's doing. Yes, to create an experience for an hour and 15 on Sunday morning, so you can come and worship Mostly. And to help train and equip you, the parent, to be able to be the primary disciplers in your kids' lives. That's the whole objective of the church. That's how we view it at Watermark. Is to grow and develop you as the parents. So, we've gotten through a couple challenges and a couple applications already. We've suggested that time. Time is the only irreplaceable commodity left on this planet. It is the only resource that we cannot get back once expended. We've talked about a plan we talked about a system or the rhythms. Shema, Shema from Deuteronomy 6 has that answer, has a great starting place for you. Even five minutes that you could get on the way in the car, five minutes at night, five minutes when you rise in the morning, has a great plan. We've talked about, we've talked about time, that it can no longer be an excuse. We've talked about plan, that you have at least a starting place to begin So you've carved out time. Let's just suggest, you've carved out time and you're starting to work your plan. Another great question would be, how would you know you've succeeded? Ben, how would you know that there's fruit that's being born out here? Fruit that's being produced in my kid's life, whether that's the adopted one or my biological kid. How will I know? Well, we've already kind of implied the answer in the question. We said that God is God in terms of how you hear. That you have personified that in in your kid's life. That you're listening to the word of God. You've opened it in front of them and you've joined together to hear. That's one way you know you're, you're doing right. You're on the right path. That's how you know God is God in your house. Another way is God is God in terms of teaching, repeating it. That's the plan we just talked about. That you have some kind of repetition in the house. That's that's drilling down in their head at different points throughout the day. Remember, every time they're not with you, they're in a potential assault of the senses, assault of the worldview. Someone else is trying to give them worldview all day long. And so that repetition is is allowing opportunity for God to be God in that moment. But there's two others. There's two other areas that come from the Shema in, in different places uh, or in that same passage there in verse 7, it talks about love. Love the Lord your God. That's verse 5. Then, then, then in verse 7, it talks about fearing the Lord. That's in, that's in um, chapter 11. So Deuteronomy chapter 11. We talked about chapter 6. Chapter 11 talks about fear the Lord only and serve him. This is the breakdown of what we've talked about. This is what we've covered. Here, here. Make God God in the way that you hear. Make God God in the way you repeat. Make God God in the way that you love and the way that you fear. And that's how we're going to land this plane today. That's how I want to finish today. That's how you'll know you're succeeding in your household and with those that you have influence with. And there's this tremendous example of this story. It comes from Mark 4. It comes from Mark 4. It gives you a real definition for fear, what fear means when it talks about in the Bible. For the longest time, that word would fool me and trip me up, but this is a true definition of what it means to fear God. It doesn't mean fear God and that, you know, he's scary. It has a totally different meaning, and I think this New Testament passage totally embodies it. Check it out. It's a common story. Verse 37 in Mark 4. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you even care that we're all going to die? Verse 39. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 41. Disciples were absolutely terrified. Who's this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey. You thought they were scared when when their lives were on the line. Notice what it says. They went from scared to terrified that the living God was in the boat with them. That's fear. Fear. That's biblical fear. A reverence, an adoration, an awe, a heaviness, a, a total and complete leveling of God's presence. That's a true definition of fear. They're in the boat and they're terrified. They're, they're scared for their lives, that their life might end. They might go overboard and they might have to swim harsh against the tides. And yet God becomes God in that moment, in that boat. And now they really feel like the seams of their whole body is going to tear apart because they're that close to the living God in that moment. How will you know if you succeeded in your home or with the kids you have influence with? They will have that healthy reverence for God and know how close and personal he is. And you see, what about that love? What about that love? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. You see, God having having God in his proper place, letting God be God gives us a proper orientation for what it means for you, whether you have kids yet or not, and what it means for your kids. Then you may have the most complete picture of love in the whole world. You see, as the band comes up, I want to talk about this love and fear piece. Um, Do our kids, does the next generation understand that God being God means they're radically engulfed by his fear and his love? Does that young woman on Twitter understand that? Does the child right across the hall in this room right now understand that? Do the teenagers in this junior high room right across the hall, do they understand that? Do the 2,000 kids who are in foster care right now in need of a home in ages of 3, 5, 6, 15, in danger of aging out, do they understand that fear and love? The 19-year-old man who's living on the street, who was in the office with us just three or four days ago, does he understand that? Did that fear and love of a holy God is available to them. Does the kid, does the child, the 15-year-old, just a, really a child, the 15-year-old student from Corona Mar High School who uh, a couple weeks ago ended his life and rocked the whole community infected so many even here, did he know? Did he know that he was engulfed with that same loving, ferocious love, that same ferocious, reverent fear? Well, he left... A couple letters this young man did. You know how many times in those letters he referenced the success? The success that was caving in on him? The standard that was set before him? He talked specifically about a class. He talked specifically about how if you don't get the grade, it's like a game ender. Life is over. So why why not just end it? Because I can't handle this pressure and this anxiety and this, this battle for success any longer. Guys, I'm here to tell you I get the privilege and the honor to remind you that of all those kids I just mentioned, the young woman there, the kids across the hall, this young man, the students that I worked with for years, the students that are here right now every midweek and every weekend are in the boat right now with waves crashing over the bow. They feel like they're going to end any moment. The pressures and anxieties and fears and weights and burdens that are upon them are like never before. They're having to grow up so fast. If you think that your time is done and that you have nothing left to give to either your biological kids or the kid that you might adopt, I'm just here to remind you, I'm here to signal the clarion call that your work is not done. Please join us. Please join us as you consider, you prayerfully consider who God might be nudging you to build into and to make sure they know that the God of heaven and earth is right there in the boat. He's right there on the pillow beside them. That picture was meant to serve us for generations to come. It's the same God. I tell you why I think a big family vision is, is worth it. I think a big family vision, not that we could have designed it this way, not that we could have written this story, that my wife and I said yes to foster care and adoption, and God just gave us some babies that needed a home by his own design. We didn't just have a grand plan, have seven kids. So How can you even write that? We didn't know that. And yet that's the story that God is writing. And, and though I'm going to fall on my face nine times out of ten, I want you to understand there's, there's, a, there's a passage in the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 127. I'm not going to get it right. But he talks about blessed is a man with many kids. He's like a warrior. He's like a warrior with a, with a full quiver. The quiver being the receptacle for arrows. Blessed is that man with a, with a basket full of arrows. And my objective, though I'm going to fall on my face nine times out of ten with my kids, given the stories of the students I know, given the stories of this young man from a couple weeks ago, given the story from this woman who's on the screen, given all those stories, I want to make sure that I spend every minute of my life ensuring that my seven kids understand that I don't care how successful they are, though that's a good thing. I don't care how pretty they are. I don't care how accomplished they are. I don't care how much money they make. I don't care about any of those things. I just want to make sure that they're a sharp enough arrow sent into the world to show other people that fear and love of God. That's all I put on this planet to do. That's my destiny. I have a great calling of working in a church and working with people. I love those things. That's just my calling. That's not my destiny. My destiny is to ensure that those seven kids get the best repeated opportunities at hearing that truth. That there's an awesome God that they can learn to revere and who loves them with a reckless love. He's in the boat with them right now. That's all I need to do. They're going to, the guys are going to sing this song again. It's a newer song to us. I just want to put the lyrics on the screen one more time, and you're going to get another chance. You're going to get another chance to sing this song out. Sing the song out for you. Sing the song out for your children. Sing the song out for the person you don't know yet and that God's inviting you into a relationship with. That's what it says. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God how it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99 for me. I couldn't earn it. I I don't deserve it still. You give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, the never-ending, reckless love of God. Awesome. Totally unique and absolute love of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Father. Thank you that you are the first, Father. Thank you that you went before us, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you fight for us. Even as obstinate as we are, Lord, I'm, I'm, my, I'm my three-year-old, Jesus. I have my head in the sand, kicking and screaming and yelling at you. I'm on my face like a fool, and you knock down every wall to come and find me and get at me. Thank you, Father, for being the best and the only. Thank you that you are in your rightful place, Jesus, in in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, enthroned, the only one true God. Thank you. Father, let that come near. Let that truth be a reality for all of us here this morning. In Jesus' name. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.